In this episode, the first in my series all about prints. This time around, all about albumin prints. Hey everybody, Keith Dotson here, and in this episode of the Fine Art Photography Podcast, we will discuss albumin prints, what they are, how they're made, and what are their characteristics. I hope as this will be a useful resource for photographers who are interested in learning about historic processes and for collectors who want to know more before they invest in antique prints. I'll talk about the history of albumin prints, then I'll describe the appearance of albumin prints, and finally I'll talk about the conservation and longevity of albumin prints. And I'll give you a step-by-step process as described in 1860. First, let me say I understand the predicament of presenting inherently visual information over an audio format. If you'd like to see the samples of albumin prints before or during the discussion, I'll include a link to a blog post where you can look at all the print samples. Photography has always been a science as well as an art. The practice of photography has been a constant march of changing technology since the very earliest photograph made with light-hardened asphalt on a metal plate Still today with our increasingly powerful digital sensors. The albumin print was first introduced sometime between 1847 and 1850 in the midst of the daguerreotype era. And while daguerreotype prints were arguably among the most beautiful ever made, they had some inherent problems. Namely, they were difficult and laborious to make, they were small, and primarily they created a unique original, meaning you only got one print out of the process. By the way, I published a few previous episodes about daguerreotypes, and you can find links to those episodes in the description. I especially recommend the episode about Southworth and Hawes. The albumin print, invented by the French inventor and photographer Louis-Désiré Blancart Everard, was the first process that was viable for widespread use that allowed for a negative that could reproduce multiple prints. Albumin prints were popular from the 1850s till the early 20th century. They peaked out around uh, the 1890s. The term albumin comes from the albumin separated from egg whites that were used as a coating for the paper stock, giving the paper a gloss coat that served as an emulsion to support and bind the light-sensitive chemicals. To make the albumin coating, egg yolks were removed from egg whites, which were then beaten to a froth and allowed to liquefy. Then it was mixed with table salt. The paper was coated by floating it on top of the albumin solution in a tray. Then the paper was floated again in a tray of light-sensitive chemicals and allowed to dry. The glossy albumin coating kept the silver salts above the paper fibers, and that allowed for crisp, sharp images compared to other non-emulsion processes like platinum printing, where the light-sensitive chemicals were actually embedded into the fibers of the paper. Albumin prints were a type of contact print, placed directly under the negative and exposed to UV light from the sun. They were not chemically developed in the traditional sense that we think of now. Instead, they were printed out or developed simply while being exposed to UV light. The image appeared on the paper during exposure. Once the print was almost fully exposed, it was removed from the light and placed into a fixing bath of sodium thiosulfate, which fixed the print's exposure and prevented further darkening. Often a toner step was included to enhance the color and tones of the print and to aid in longevity. I'm talking in the past tense, but there are still a small group of photographers who make albumin prints today. Modern photographers can use any kind of negative to make the prints, but photographers in the 1850s had to use glass plate negatives since film negatives that we're familiar with now were not invented for decades still. Albumin prints were made possible by the invention of the wet plate collodion process for creating the negatives. Albumin was originally used to make the negatives also, but the collodion process invented in 1851 made several improvements, including shorter exposure times. 
Wet plate collodion was a process where the glass plate was thoroughly cleaned, then sensitized with the collodion and a silver nitrate in a dark room, which was often a dark tint in those days, and then placed while wet into a light, fast plate holder, where it was taken to the camera, exposed, and promptly returned to the dark room for processing. Because this all takes place within a few minutes, it meant that the entire setup, the dark room, the glass plates, the chemicals, all had to be carried to the location of the photograph. In my episode about Carlton Watkins, I talked about how he had to travel to the wilderness of Yosemite in the 1850s with a wagon loaded equipment and fragile glass plates to make his lustrous landscape images. And I've heard stories of how Edward S. Curtis lost his wagon over the side of a hill, glass plates shattered in the tumble. However, once you had a successful negative, you could make endless reproductions. According to the George Eastman House, albumin printing technology allowed for the rise of the industrial scale photography business. Travel photographs of places like the Taj Mahal or the Egyptian pyramids became popular items. Photography shops had to keep flocks of chickens on hand so they could keep up with the great demand for eggs needed to make photo papers. Here's a quote from an article from Eastman House published in 1955 entitled 60,000 Eggs a Day about the industrial scale of albumin prints in the late 19th century. And I'm quoting, Almost any photograph of the 19th century is printed on very thin, glossy paper and has a deep, rich brown tone. Because the photographic paper was coated with egg white, it's known as albumin paper. So great was the demand for this popular product that the Dresden Albumizing Company, the largest in the world, used 60,000 eggs a day. Girls did nothing all day long but break eggs and separate the whites from the yolks. The whites were then churned and the yolks sold to leather dressers for finishing kid and fine leathers. End quote. The article includes an illustration of women in long dresses and bustles working busily in a well-lit factory space surrounded by stacked crates of eggs. Dresden, Germany was the home of the world's largest suppliers of albumin paper, and they believed that the bacteria growth that came from allowing the egg whites to sit for a few days gave papers an extra glossy, high-quality coating, a fact that was contested by other manufacturers. But nonetheless, it's said that a photographer in that day could easily identify the Dresden paper simply by its smell. Albumin papers were very thin because rigid papers were more difficult to float properly. As albumin printing took off, plants in Europe and the U.S. made prepared albumin papers for sale to photographers who still had to add their own light-sensitive emulsions later, but at least they didn't have to fiddle with the eggy part of the process. In that same Eastman House article, they describe the look of albumin prints and include the words of its inventor. And this is a quote. The chief physical characteristic of the albumin print is its smooth, glossy surface, which was in contrast to the paper texture of prints made by Fox Talbot's technique or salted paper, which required no coating. Blancart Everard was aware of the aesthetic quality of his invention. Prints on albumin paper, he wrote in his Traité, have a greater warmth of tone, more transparency, and precision of detail. But on the other hand, salted papers give prints which have the aspect of drawings or aquatint engravings, a mysterious vagueness which is pleasing in works of art because they appeal to the soul as well as to the senses, to the spirit as well as to the eyes. Compositions from nature, portraits, landscapes with large perspective effects will be more beautiful on salted paper, but albumin papers have the advantage when it is a question of reproducing natural history specimens and buildings, where detail, precision, and delicacy are the most important qualities. End quote. It's funny, the sharp glossiness of albumin prints actually became controversial in the 19th century, some people calling their vividness vulgar. Most albumin prints have a yellowish coloration resembling sepia prints somewhat, with warm background and reddish or deep dark browns. In a video available on YouTube, a George Eastman House curator shows us two albumin prints side by side. One that is not degraded, looks very neutral with paper that's still white and the image in black and white may be slightly the same deep eggplant color as a selenium print. 
The other displays the characteristic warm and brown look of most albumin prints, a state she refers to as albumin deterioration. The silver image particles produced in silver printing out papers are much smaller than the image particles produced by silver prints processed in chemical developers. Remember, printing out papers are ones where the image develops in the sun. Anyways, the smaller silver particles create a phenomenon known as light scattering, which means that the images made on printing out papers do not appear neutral black, but instead appear brown, red, or yellow. With albumin prints, a gold or selenium toning step was included to produce a purple or purplish brown look. And I got that information from a very thorough article called The History, Technique, and Structure of Albumin Prints, published in 1980 by James M. Riley. We'll hear more from him in a minute. Whereas a large daguerreotype would have been about 6 by 9 inches, albumin prints could be as large as any negative would allow. Pre-made albumin papers came in sheets that were 23 by 18 inches in a room of 480 sheets that cost $10 in 1860. Edward Mybridge, who is better known for his motion study images, made a stunning untitled albumin print of the Pigeon Point Lighthouse on the California coast in 1868 that's 21 and a quarter by 16 and a half inches in size. That image was one of many Mybridge photographed along the west coast from San Diego to Washington State for the Lighthouse Board. The photograph features the lighthouse dramatically perched atop a rocky promontory overlooking the Pacific Ocean, with a curve of rocky coastline sweeping across the foreground. If you want to see that image, I'll include a couple of links in the description. One goes to the museum page, but honestly, the Flickr image is better. This print portrays the deep reddish browns characteristic of an albumin print. Another Mybridge image is the absolutely luminescent Valley of Yosemite from Rocky Ford, made in 1872, which is printed at 16.88 by 21.45 inches. It's in the cover art for this episode. And finally, I'll include a link to an old albumin print that I own as part of my own small photo collection. It's a small albumin print of a photograph of Egypt attributed to P. Sabah and Lacazian, dated to 1883. It shows a road lined with trees and a couple of horse-drawn carriages and is a good example of one of the tourist-style prints produced in the late 1800s. A link to it will be in the description. Now let's talk briefly about concerns of conservation and preservation in albumin prints. Even within a decade or two of its invention, the permanence of albumin prints was called into question. Imperfections in the fixing chemistry or process meant prints would fade and yellow rapidly. Even prints kept carefully stored for decades to prevent fading may be susceptible to damage if improperly displayed today. Again from Riley's article, The History, Technique, and Structure of Albumin Prints, we learn about some of the concerns with the longevity of albumin prints, and I'm quoting, Unfortunately, albumin prints as a group merit the urgent concern and attention of conservators. Very few survive in original condition. Approximately 85% of extant albumin prints suffer from the presence of a yellowish-brown stain in the highlights or non-image areas, and almost as many exhibit overall image fading with an accompanying shift in image color from purple or purplish-brown to a sickly yellowish-brown. Deterioration often includes a partial or severe loss of highlight detail. The staining, fading, and color change may range from slight to very severe, but the extent of deterioration in albumin prints as a whole is much more advanced than nearly every other variety of photographic paper, including types which predate albumin papers, end quote. When paper manufacturers began selling more modern gelatin silver photo papers in the 1890s, you better believe they were sure to mention the instability of albumin papers in their ads. Now, ladies and gentlemen, before I wrap this up, I'm going to read for you a step-by-step process for making albumin paper as published in the Photographic News on June 29, 1860 on page 101. And if you decide not to stay for this part, thanks for listening to this point. I really appreciate you. Here we go. 
This article was called On the Preparation of Positive Paper. It was written by uh, someone named M. Alio. That's M. Period. A-L-E-O. Step one, preparation of the albumin. Break the eggs into a graduated measure, carefully avoiding the mixture of yolk with the whites. And when the desired quantity of albumin is obtained, separate the germs and pour the whites into a glazed earthen vessel. And to every 100 parts, add 5 parts of a soluble chloride. That of ammonium is best. First dissolving it in as little water as possible. The quantity of water must not exceed one-tenth of the albumin if a very brilliant surface of the proofs is desired. Beat the whites into a froth and, after allowing it to settle for five minutes, remove the froth with a fork into a hair sieve or a muslin strainer placed over a second vessel. This operation must be continued. Whole of the whites are beaten into a froth and strained. Allow the filtered albumin to settle for 12 hours. It is then ready for use. Draw sufficient quantity off into a shallow glass or porcelain dish without disturbing the sediment. It is good precaution to strain it through a piece of sponge placed in the neck of a glass or porcelain funnel. When circumstances permit, it's best to allow the albumin to repose for four or five days before use. It appears to clarify itself and gives a more brilliant surface to the positive paper. Step 2. Preparation of the paper. The positive paper must be carefully selected and experimented upon before preparation of a large quantity is undertaken. If it be unequally sized, it will give uneven proofs and unsatisfactory results. Even the cutting of the paper to the required size demands much care, and only one sheet should be cut at a time with an ivory paper knife without pressure or creasing. Mark the back of the paper and place it sheet by sheet carefully on the albumen without allowing the liquid to flow over the back of the paper. This operation is best performed in damp weather, for then the albumen takes to the paper more readily, without forming bubbles, and the paper also dries more slowly and evenly. The first sheet floated is almost always defective. Some little dexterity is required in floating the paper on the albumen, the description of which is difficult and necessarily unsatisfactory. The time which the paper should be allowed to float upon the albumen will vary with the thickness and sizing of the paper. Two minutes and a half may be taken as the average. It must not be reversed until it lies flat on the surface of the liquid. When this ensues, take the sheet by the two most distant corners, which, before it was floated on the albumen, must have been previously folded back, and raise it slowly and regularly so that the albumen forms a continuous, even coating over the whole surface. If the paper to be raised too quickly, the albumen will flow down the paper in streaks and the surface will remain uneven. By taking the paper on the corners most distant from each other and suspending it to drain and dry in that position, the risk of drying unevenly is avoided. Step 3. Hanging and drying the paper. The manner of hanging and drying the paper is one of the most important points to avoid unevenness. The following method has always been successful without causing any embarrassment to the operator. Take two pieces of stout whipcord and wax them to prevent any fragments falling onto the wet paper and string on each pieces of thin cord about an inch or an inch and a half square with holes pierced in the center through which the cord can freely pass. The cords are fastened on two walls parallel to each other with three bars of wood placed at equal distances along the cords to keep them apart. The distance must be a little greater than the width of the albumized paper. Through each piece of cork, a black varnished pin must be passed upwards in a slanting direction, which penetrates the corners of the paper without difficulty. Care must be taken that the paper hangs fully distended and even, for if it becomes curved, the albumen will dry upon its surface unequally and spoil the proofs taken upon it. According to the extent of the operations, so may these suspending appliances be plied. They have the advantage of taking up little room and are easily removed when the operation is over. 
The albumin that drains from the paper can be collected in dishes or on sheets of waste paper spread on the floor. And there you have it, directions for making the albumin paper. That's all I've got for this episode, everybody. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you again real soon.